Well, good morning, and if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and uh, if you don't uh, have your own copy of the scriptures, there's a few in front of you. It's on page 909, or you can also just follow along with me in the bulletin if you'd like to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. You could be hanging out at the pool, catching some rays. You could be at home trying to figure out if the Toronto Raptors really are going to rise up and win the NBA championship, and then what that would mean if Canada wins the National Basketball Association, and what that would mean for the world. Uh, It'd be amazing. Or you could be down at the river watching the Powerboat National Grand Prix, uh, but you're not. You're here with us uh, this morning, and so I really do want to thank you for coming. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, and that he has entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week we gather together to worship him and learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we begin to rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community We go for walks with each other. We go on bike rides with each other. We play golf with each other. We uh, eat food together. We read the Bible together. We pray together all to remind each other of the love and the provision that God has for us in Christ. And so as we rest in his love, as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully that would spread throughout the entire world. That's who we are, people trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And to help us do that this morning, as I said earlier, is Ascension Sunday. And Ascension is that time in Christ's life when he returned to heaven, and we celebrate this not because he's left us, But we celebrate this because he is the king over all things. And so this morning, I want to think about this event in the life of the resurrected Jesus. And this morning, uh, as we prepare for this sermon, I just want to give, give you a heads up. It's going to be a little bit more theological. It's going to be a little bit more information-oriented. And it's going to be a little bit more meta. And so I want, uh, I'm asking you to kind of hang in there with me and just remember there's always next week. All right? So, uh, so let's just think about the ascension, if we can. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verses uh, one through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons 
that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of this his word? Father, we are thankful that you are a God who, is, uh, who desires to be, uh, to be known. And that you're not hidden or silent, but you have made yourself known in your word, by your spirit, and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. And so it is our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, that you would attend unto us, and that you would show us lovely things in this your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is the season, right, for commencement exercises. I mean, college commencement speeches are now all over the interwebs. Uh, you know, graduates from high school are sending out all these invitations for their parties. And there's this common misconception that surrounds graduation, that somehow graduation signifies the end. But really, graduation is all about a new beginning. And that's why these graduation ceremonies are actually called commencement exercises, because they are the commencement, they are the beginning, they are the start of something new, as they sing about in High School Musical. And uh, this is the start of something new. Anyway, and, all, and, this is, and this is what the ascension of Jesus is all about, right? It's not about the end of his ministry among us. It is not about him leaving us. It is about the commencement of his eternal kingship. That through his incarnation, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus has already accomplished everything that is necessary for him to enter into heaven as the eternal king. And so what I want us to think about this morning is the ascension, all right? And as we think about the ascension, we should think about it in two ways. There's lots of ways we could do it, but for us this morning, we're going to think about it in two ways. The ascension of Christ is his enthronement. And then secondly, the ascension of Christ is his empowerment for his people. So enthronement and empowerment. Let's begin with enthronement. Now, if you're a Christian, which many of you are, some of you aren't, but if you're a Christian and someone were to ask you, who is this Jesus? What is he up to? What is he all about? You would probably begin to tell his story, and you would, tell, you would talk about things like his birth, you'd talk about the cross, you might talk about the resurrection, maybe you talk about some miracles and some of his great teachings, and those are great things, like those are things that we should talk about. When we think about our liturgical calendar, when we think about the liturgical year, we love Advent, uh, we love um, Christmas, we love Good Friday, we love Monday Thursday here at Redeemer, we love uh, Easter as well. But what about his ascension? All right, the ascension of Jesus is one of those key moments in the life of Christ that we often overlook. Because for many of us, when we think about the ascension of Christ, it's sort of like his retirement. And so when we think about the ministry of Jesus, we think he entered into the world, he did a lot of cool stuff, he worked really hard, he's faithful to God, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he'll come back again. Right? But where is he now? Right? And what is he doing? Is he on break? Is he on vacation? What is happening? Where is he and what is he doing? 
Well, the answer that we find in the Bible is that he has ascended into heaven and he is enthroned over all things. And as we look at this text, we see it as we begin to work through it. You see it in verse 1. We learn that after the resurrection and before the ascension, so Jesus is risen from the dead. He walks on earth with his disciples for 40 days, and he's teaching them. So he's, going, he's giving them this nice discipleship program, a, a crash course in seminary in 40 days from the resurrected Jesus, the best professor ever. And what is he teaching? We see in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so what's happening is that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is now with his people for 40 days, and he's essentially proving his resurrection. He is showing them that he is the same Jesus that they followed, and he is the same Jesus that they watched die on the cross. That he's not a ghost, he's not a famine, a phantom, he's not sort of this collective hallucination, but he is the resurrected in body Jesus. And that resurrected Jesus is now teaching his people, not only about his resurrection, but he's teaching them about his kingdom. He's teaching them what his kingdom was like. That his kingdom is a kingdom of life, not death. That his kingdom is a kingdom of love and peace and freedom and forgiveness and flourishing. That his kingdom is multinational, multicultural, universal. And it's a kingdom where the desires of God begin to become the desires of man. It is a kingdom that is filled with the presence and the embrace of God. And so in verse 6, the apostles asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the apostles, they're hanging out with Jesus, they're thinking about the kingdom of God, but their vision of this kingdom is... Uh, is um, is merely sort of nationalistic in nature, right? And they're still thinking, though, about this kingdom. And so this is the context. The disciples and Jesus are talking about the kingdom of God. So then we read in verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took, them out, took him out of their sight. Now, this phrase, he was lifted up, is the reason why many of us, when we think about the ascension, think about Jesus sort of taking off like Iron Man, like into the sky, and, uh, and he's being, but this lifted up isn't just sort of this elevation into the sky, this lifted up is a reference to Jesus as king being lifted up to the throne, being lifted up in glory and honor, being lifted up as the king in God's presence. And this is our confession as Christians. We've always confessed this. Think about the Apostles' Creed, right? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Think about what we confessed earlier in this service in the Nicene Creed, right? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And what this is saying is that the resurrected body of Jesus has gone into the throne room of heaven, and now Jesus is ruling over his kingdom. And this becomes more clear as we think about the details of this passage, if you think about the cloud, right? This cloud that, he, that takes him up, right, into the throne room of heaven. And it's this cloud that kind of clouds their vision of him. And this cloud is actually an echo back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, 
where the Son of Man comes up out of this cloud and is brought into the presence of God, and God the Father then gives the Son the glory and the rule and the dominion over all things. Listen to Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is interesting because Jesus is constantly referring to himself as the Son of Man. So Daniel sees one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, the Ancient of Days being God, presumably the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so what we see happening here is that Daniel, in a sense, is foreseeing the ascension of Jesus, where the Father gives him the kingdom. And notice what this kingdom is like. It is a kingdom that is made up of all peoples, all nations, all languages. And all peoples, languages, and nations are now serving him. And that kingdom, it says, has no end. And now you put that in context with what's happening as they're teaching about the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus then say to his disciples? You are to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea, in all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what he's saying is, I am the king, and you now are participating as my witnesses of my kingdom. And therefore go out, because my kingdom includes all. It includes all races, all languages, all ages and stages, rural and urban, educated and uneducated, the rich and the poor, those whose lives are put together and those whose lives are falling apart. Jesus has ascended as the king. And so the call for all of humanity because of the ascension is for you and me to become his witnesses. To proclaim the glories of his kingdom and to order our lives in loving service to him. And so here's the point of the ascension. It is that Jesus is king over all the world. But there's still a question that sort of surrounds the ascension. And it's not so much about what he's doing, but where is he? And there's an easy answer to this. The answer is that he is in heaven and that's the answer that the text gives in verse 11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so what we see is the Bible is clearly telling us that Jesus is in heaven right now. But this then sparks even more questions. Where is it? Right? Is his body there? What is heaven? Right? How does one get there? Well, bear with me for a few moments uh, because I can't answer these questions according to our modern enlightenment and secular assumptions. Because for most of us, when we think about heaven and when we think about earth, we think about these distinct sort of places, right? These places that you can sort of go and that they're sort of material or something like that. Because when we think about heaven and earth, we tend to think of the earth as sort of this physical realm. And we think about heaven as this spiritual realm. And by spiritual, we don't necessarily mean the Holy Spirit. We often think of it as this spiritual realm, meaning that it's ephemeral or it's non-material. And then we think about the earth as this physical reality that's sort of decaying and fleeting. And we think about heaven as sort of this kind of spiritual, ephemeral, permanent reality, sort of in a platonic sense. And then many of us, when we think about going to heaven, we think about we're escaping this material world, and then we enter into some disembodied spiritual state that we call heaven. 
but that's not the biblical cosmology. Right? The biblical cosmology is very different. Though there is a heaven and an earth, and these two things are different dimensions, heaven is essentially God's space, and the earth is our space. And in the Bible, these dimensions at times overlap. And this is really important, because when you read the Bible, one of the great themes of the Bible is that heaven and earth would become one once again, that heaven and earth would be reunited. Remember the story of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he created the heavens and the earth, you might remember that heaven and earth, right, were overlapping in the Garden of Eden. And there in the Garden of God, man walked with God and God walked with man. And there in the garden, they partnered with one another in the building of a beautiful kingdom, in the building of a world that would flourish and be beautiful and be, would be ordered according to God. And so when God had placed humanity in this garden, right, he made us to be his image bearers. And by being his image bearers, we were then made to be vice regents. We were made as ambassadors. We were made as little kings and queens who were to bear witness to God's beauty and his glory and his power and his goodness. But in the fall, something happens. Because in the fall, what happened was that Adam and Eve, who were meant to be witnesses of God, they wanted to make their own world apart from him. And so at that point, heaven and earth, which had been overlapping, now became separate spheres. And God's promise from the very beginning, from the fall on, has been that he would reunite the creation to himself. That he would reunite heaven and earth. And so as we read the Bible, there are these things, there are these places that theologians call the thin spaces. There are these thin spaces between heaven and earth. Or there are these places where, in a sense, God's rule and his presence draws near. And in the Old Testament, that's what the temples were all about. And that is why oftentimes in worship, temples would be built in these high places so that you could go up and get close to God, to be near to heaven. And it was the temples that became these thin places. And this is why when God's people made the temple and God had given them directions and given them plans for the temple, it was supposed to be this architectural garden and it was supposed to be an architectural garden in order to remind them of the Garden of Eden when heaven and earth had been united. But the problem was that the earth was filled with humanity's rebellion to God. And so God, in his grace, as he gave us the temple, not only gave us the temple, but gave us these sacrifices and the sacrifices were meant to sacramentally absorb the sin of humanity or in a sense to cleanse the earth and to create these thin spaces where God could once again come near and where he could draw near to his humanity. And this was the goal, right? And this is why God had set up Israel and this is why God had set up the temple and this is why God had created his kingdom in Israel so that he could dwell with his people and that his people could dwell with him. But sadly, what happens as you read the Bible is that the kingdom of Israel rejected God as king, and they began to look to the kingdoms of the earth for power and for wisdom. 
And so now we come to the New Testament, and when we come into the New Testament, we begin to read about Jesus, who is God, who leaves heaven, and he comes to earth. And by doing so, what we see is that heaven is drawing near to us once again. And this is why the language of the kingdom of God is all over Jesus. And that's the point of Jesus' miracles, that Jesus, in a sense, is creating these thin places, these places of heaven on earth. And so as we look at these miracles of Jesus, they are signs of what heaven will be like. They are signs of God's kingdom, that the sick are made well, the hungry are fed, uh, the prisoners are set free, the poor are made rich, the sad rejoice. And why is that? It's not just about social justice, though there is a social justice component to it. It is because the king is near, and he is pouring out his blessings upon the earth. And so Jesus is constantly calling his people to repentance, meaning to return to the king, to return to God as our king, and to begin to order our lives according to his rule. And so everywhere that Jesus begins to go, we see heaven on earth. We see these little spots of heaven and earth beginning to overlap. That's a lot. Right, I just said. So let's sort of think about it in a different way. Some of you have probably seen Stranger Things. And if you've seen Stranger Things, you'll remember that Will had fallen through a thin space. And he had fallen through the thin space into the upside down. And the upside down is this dimension that is separate from our dimension, but is just as real and is just as physical. And the upside down, if you'll remember, interacts with and at times interpenetrates our world. But the upside down, though it reflects our world, the upside down is a world of death and emptiness. And so if you want to think about the upside down, you could think about hell. Like the upside down is hell. And, and those spaces, those thin spaces where the upside down comes into our reality are these holes that have been ripped into the earth. And then what happens is people begin to move back and forth between them, and the upside down begins to interact with our world. Here's the deal. Heaven is the opposite of the upside down. Heaven is the right side up. Heaven is the realm of life and flourishing and joy, and it is a realm where God rules and he reigns. And God's goal is to reunite heaven and earth. His goal is for the two to fully overlap once again and for earth to flourish again under God's rule and his reign so that we would become right side up rather than upside down. And so in a sense, the ascension is Jesus going into the right side up and from there he rules and reigns over this earth. And by going to heaven, Jesus then commences a new work on the earth, a work that he says is more powerful and even better. Now, why is his work more powerful and better? Well, it's because through his enthronement that he now distributes his empowerment. Now, go back and remember what I just talked about. Wherever Jesus went, heaven was going. Wherever Jesus went, there are these little bits of heaven on earth, but that space, that thin space, could only be where he was. But now Jesus, as the king, is multiplying his rule through his Holy Spirit, because it is the Holy Spirit that is the power of God's kingdom advancement. And you see this in the text. In verse 2, he taught them 
by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, he tells them to stay in Jerusalem until they're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Why? Verse 8, because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what he's saying is that his power by the Holy Spirit now multiplies as the Spirit empowers his people to be witnesses throughout the earth. And so the call for God's people is now to fill the earth once again with the rule of his kingdom and to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the king and to now order our lives according to him. And as the spirit does this, then we become these thin spaces in the world. We become these places of heaven and earth, on earth. Because think about what's going on in the ascension. In the ascension, something from this earth moves into heaven. At the ascension, the bodily Jesus, the perfect man, the new Adam, ascends into heaven. And then what happens at Pentecost? Something from heaven descends back upon the earth, the Holy Spirit. And so these events, the ascension and Pentecost, are the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. These are the beginning of the reunion of heaven and earth. And so as the Spirit descends upon the people of God, we are now empowered and sent, verse 8, to be his witnesses, to proclaim in word and in deed, right, the life of the king and the ethic of his kingdom. Again, imagery is important. The imagery of this text is important. You'll notice in verse 8 and 9, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Again, this is an echo. And it is echoing back, if you remember, to 2 Kings. When Elijah is taken up into heaven, and he is empowering and commissioning his disciple, Elisha, to go out and be a further witness and a more powerful witness of the kingdom of God. And this is significant because through the ascension, Jesus is not only a greater Elijah, but he is also empowering a greater Elisha. We are a greater Elisha. He's empowering his church to be his witnesses. And Paul understands this. I mean, we often read Ephesians as it's a book about the resurrection, but Ephesians really is this book about the ascension because they're thinking about, he says, put your mind on the heavenly things where Christ is seated. He's saying, think about the ascended Jesus who is ruling and reigning over all things. And in Ephesians chapter 2, as he's thinking about the ascended Christ, he then begins to talk about how God is drawing Jews and Gentiles together. And when he draws us together, do you know what he builds? He builds a temple. He's building a new thin space. And it's not a temple that has one address, but it's a temple that begins to fill the earth. So much so that in Ephesians chapter 4, this temple that is being gifted by the ascended Jesus has been gifted so that it says it fills all things. Now that's a lot. But here's the point. By the authority of the ascended Jesus... The church has been empowered and commissioned to be little communities of heaven on earth. And as we spread throughout the world, proclaiming Jesus to be the king, 
working for flourishing and joy and peace and healing and love and well-being, working against injustice and loneliness, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the resurrection, heaven and earth are beginning to be reunited once again. And this is what Christians have always prayed for, though we may not know what we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the reunion of heaven and earth, that what happens in heaven would happen here on earth. And liturgically, that is what we are participating in in the Songtus that we sing before communion. I mean, we love the Songtus because it's beautiful. But what are we doing? The point of the Songtus, remember what I say before we sing. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we praise and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you, singing. And the point of the song, too, is that we are asking for our voices to be lifted up into the heavenly realm and for the heavenly realm to come down and for our two voices to sing in harmony once again. And this begins to give shape to our mission here on 17th and Highland. We're not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and in death to the resurrected, ascended King Jesus. And we are his children, and we are his servants, and we are living sacrifices made by him to be a living temple, made by him to be a community of heaven on earth. We've been made by him so that people could come in among us and experience a taste, a foretaste of what God is like and what his kingdom is like. And then he sends us out from this place as individuals, as little bits of heaven sent out into the world so that the world would know the glory and the kindness of our king. And in the end, the entire world would be restored to him. And heaven and earth would once again be one, singing in harmony the praises of our great king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sitting on high, and we pray that more and more we would see you high and lifted up, that we as your children would rejoice and that we as this community that you are forming would be a thin space where people could come and they could see you and know you where we would experience you. So pour your spirit upon us, empower us and strengthen us for the work that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.